Are we live? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor. Oh, I'm Andy. <laughs> yeah, sorry for I got to tell you who you were. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I just picked a name. Yeah. I hope that's cool. <clears throat> New identity every episode. Right. We, we haven't uh, mentioned our names before, right? Right. We thought it would be a good idea. Yeah. yeah so, so, I mean, we know who we are. Most of the time. Well, I know who you are. You know who I am. That's as close as we got. Do we know <laughs> ourselves? That's a different question. That's a very different right. question. Yep. Uh, I won't make such claims. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess you're you're right. We probably should have introduced ourselves before you mentioned that to me to me offline, and it seemed like a good call. So here we are. I have a, I have a what's going on with I you? Have a question for you. I'm ready. Well, I, so I've been thinking. Um, I was thinking earlier today about Skeletor. <laughs> okay. So you're you're a little younger than me. Uh, a little bit. You, you had uh, you had you had Skeletor in your youth, right? I did. I actually had a Skeletor action figure that I remember playing with a lot as a kid. So did so. I think I had a Skeletor. I had a few. I had a He Man and some of the other was. Um, I can't remember all the characters anymore, but I had a He Man and a Skeletor, and I had that cat, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some kind of gray skull. I think I had a castle, a castle gray skull too. Wow, you had a whole set. Right. See, I didn't even have, I didn't have He Man, but yes, I, I am familiar with the Skeletor. I remember, you know, playing He Man so much when I was a kid. I would, I was like constantly running around with just a stick shoved into the back of my shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, sticks as a kid—they could be guns, they could be swords, oh, so, bazookas, so uh, just. So much positive. We, you know, that that is one of the sad parts about getting older. It's just like you just lose that that imagination, that creativity, that that the simple objects can be, you know, have so many uses. Well, you know, some of the problem is you have you, you end up with money after a while, you know, and and you like you can buy your own stuff, and you're like, well, I'm just going to get this special purpose thing now. I don't need to put a stick right. in the back of my shirt and run around. I'm going to order a, a replica Lord of the Rings sword from Amazon for $300 instead of like going outside and making my own shards of Narsil. Yeah. I had long ago when, uh, when I was in my twenties, one of my friends who was, you know, the same age when he started working professionally and went out in the world. One of the first things he bought was a bat Cause you know, he needed, he needed <laughs> one of those and that thing was serious. It was very sharp and super dangerous. And there was no way anyone should have one of those cause you know, that I don't know. It was something, but you know, it was cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, not, I mean, not very cool. I remember I got a, uh, I got a plastic, uh, He-Man sword. Uh, and I thought this is great. You know, it was like no more sticks for me. So it was kind of, maybe that was part of growing up. Right. And, but the problem was that it was too heavy to put in the back of my shirt. Cause I didn't get it like a scabbard or whatever. I didn't get anything right. to put it in. So I had to, I'm just stuffing this plastic shirt or plastic uh, sword in the back of my shirt, but it was just a little too heavy to fit back there. And so then I was stuck in this place where I could go back to the stick, but I had the sword, but right. I couldn't carry it around He-Man style. And so it just kind of ruined the whole thing for me. Yeah. Awful. It was, it was a terrible situation. I was thinking about Skeletor. 
Yeah. Because, you know, his body, like, it looks like he's got a body. You mm-hmm. had the you had the action figure, right? He, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he pretty kind of muscly. Yeah, he was he all wasn't good. like, uh, yeah, bulk, bulked up. He had hit the gym for sure. But it, but which implies that he wasn't just a skeleton under there. So Skeletor right. was just like some guy whose face came off. I think right? there's, there is some backstory that I I didn't get. Um to Skeletor and like maybe he did have a body you know we got to go see the Skeletor wiki Hmm. uh, do a deep dive on Skeletor I think that's a good idea we should probably maybe not do that on on the recording yeah let's not do it on air but we'll come back with some Skeletor (laughs) knowledge in a future episode I I don't know I I think that Skeletor really you know if we if we were to revisit um you know, the, the masters of the universe universe, I think we would find the Skeletor have like a reason for being, you know, so, so negative all the time because some, somehow he lost his face. Like just all this guy in his head. Yeah. I think it's one of those situations. He was clearly ashamed of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But did we misjudge him? Was he perhaps not the bad guy, but the hero? He could have been. This whole, you know, he was certainly misunderstood and not, you know, not given the respect that somebody who's got a clear disability, right? He was yeah. not, he was, you know, he was just all the time like swinging swords at him and sticking his cat on him. I don't know. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about the intersection of Skeletor and uh, computer science here. And I, I know that you have one, I know, or, or there's a, there's probably a 5% chance that you just wanted to talk about Skeletor. Wow, would you say five percent? <laughs> uh, six, seven, perhaps, and climbing. I mean, I feel like numbers are related to computers. So if you go from, say, a, the percent chance that I wanted to talk about Skeletor, and you were to maybe multiply that by a few numbers, then you would mm-hmm. probably end up somewhere. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I was just thinking about Skeletor and TypeScript. Yeah. But I have gotten I, zero connection between Skeletor and TypeScript. This is well, let's just see. The I way mean, my maybe like a, a degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing if we can connect ourselves from Skeletor to TypeScript. You kind of gave us a little bit of a clue when you're talking about, you know, the outward appearance being different from what we thought it was on the inside. You know, we imagined bones all the way down, but. There's no evidence for that. So I mean, there's evidence how can to the we... contrary. Yeah, evidence to the contrary. Right. So yeah. mm-hmm. how does that, so how what, does that what bridge is it, the gap? Is... So you're saying that, so JavaScript is like the skeleton, right? And then hmm. TypeScript is like the the muscles, the, you know, the, the sort of, the, the out maybe the the clothing the the purpley capey thing and the muscles and the whole body and the and the sinews and all that right uh and mm-hmm. because there's still javascript in there there's not enough skin for a face right that yep metaphor. well i think as a as a typescript yeah i think it's really really close actually um mm-hmm. you, you got to think as a typescript developer what do you you know 
interact with. You you interact with that that muscly mass and the clothing on the outside. You don't you don't approach the the kind of JavaScript on the inside. That's all internal details. You don't worry about that. You leave that to the compiler and the the uh, the bundler. So in that way, I feel like that's sort of like the the internal skeleton. It's interesting. It's really hard to make a metaphor out of nothing, though. (laughs) Yeah, metaphors. uh, It turns out that metaphors should have some relationship to from on either end. Yeah, I think that's good. I think a lot about metaphors. I think you and I are similar in this. I think Um, trying to use metaphors as a means of teaching, and this is just a great reminder that that metaphors should be thought of before they are said. Yeah. I get a lot of reminders of that. It seems uh, I'm constantly remi- being reminded by my wife that I should uh, think before I speak. That's fine. yeah. You know, well, particularly in a uh, teaching role. Yeah. You know, sometimes, um, well, usually in a teaching role, in, in my in my role as, a, as an instructor, I. I'm not just, I don't just start out with the metaphor. I end up, I'm trying to explain some particular thing. And so maybe I come up with a metaphor and sometimes mm. it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it half works and, you know, and, and so, you know, you got to, one of the tricks to, to teaching with metaphor is knowing when to say, you know, none of what I'm saying makes any sense. We should probably go back to the code and me trying to explain, um, uh, you know, JavaScript object literals by Little House on the Prairie references is not working. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once in a while it works out. I mean, so so it's it's easier if you have a little context. You have something you're trying, something uh, specific and concrete you're trying to describe. Then you can come right. up with some metaphor. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the the problem that you probably run into is having to instruct a lot of people at once and having all their different kind of life experiences, you know, not every metaphor is going to connect with every person. Uh, and it's a good thing, I guess, if you can get one or two people a little further along by using a metaphor, but you can maybe set other people back by using the wrong metaphor. So you have to be careful. I find that kind of related to that. One of the things that can be a little tricky and I've, I've learned to be conscious of is sort of colloquialisms. Mm. particularly as I have, you know, I usually don't have many, but I almost always have one or two students where English is a second language. Maybe they're an immigrant and mm-hmm. they just don't have the same context that the rest of us have. So I can't make, you know, jokes about, you know, nineties television or references to that sort of thing, or even just any, any, any kind of vague reference to some cultural, you know, colloquially known thing. And and actually, there uh, seriously in my life, there were when I was growing up, there were a lot of like religious analogies and things like that too. Mm-hmm. And you know, you try to not not exactly repress those things, but they're not they're not accessible to everyone, and so it doesn't preserve a purpose. You know, so it's, right. it can be. I tricky. think when you get to that um, that intentional teaching role, you know, I think people do kinds of all kinds of unintentional teaching. Um, but now you and, and to some degree me, you know, we're in intentional teaching roles. And so we have to be very mindful of the words that we say and like how they'll be 
how they will help or hurt certain people. Uh, I think about that a lot. Like if I give an example of something, um, if it does them no good or it doesn't help connect, it's not like it's a neutral thing. It could in fact hurt them. Um, so I worry about that a lot. Like is, is the thing that I'm doing now going to hurt the person in terms of their understanding of something by polluting the, polluting the, the topic and giving them too much information? I don't know how you've experienced that in your own career. Well, my first response to that is you're, you know, you just have to accept that you're going to screw it up and do that sometimes. Sure. You know, there's no, there's no getting around like misspeaking or, you know, saying, saying something that maybe is a little bit of a white lie, but you're like, this is okay because we're not, it's not related to the context or whatever we're talking about right now. But then, you know, mm. later on they remember that. Um, and, you, you know, it's sort of, I guess, an old saw that, you know, the students remember the things you don't want them to, <laughs> which I don't, you know, yep. it's one of those kind of, um, uh, it, it's it's sort of a fallacy, I guess, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a, a bias that mm. um, it appears, it, 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 it seems like they only remember the things that we don't, but they actually listen. The, the, the truth is with the students, you, you can't control the things that they're actually going to hear. You know, yeah. you can say a lot of things at them and you can repeat things a bunch and increase the chances that they're going to hear it. But you can't control the things you're going to hear. And it does oftentimes seem like usually it's the thing that you didn't really mean or you offhandedly said and you didn't really think through that they learned and internalized and become part of their, you know, their conscious, their their internal soul. You know, they, they brought it in. Um, and so I, I do think it's reasonable to be thoughtful about that with the understanding that you're always going to say something wrong. What's your philosophy around um, telling somebody something or teaching a group something that you know is not completely true? Like, let me give you a, maybe a more concrete example. We, we might say that .NET Core is cross-platform, right? Hooray, we can run on Linux and, and Mac, not just Windows anymore. Um, but that's not entirely true because we know there are some um, parts of the base class library that, that are framework dependent the way that we maybe call them or, or um, they just depend on something that's, that's part of, of windows. So how do you handle that? Uh, do you preface it by saying this is not entirely true or do you say it like, Hey, this is completely cross platform. And then you come back later and said, Hey, that thing I told you was not entirely true. Do you give it to them on the front end or the back end? Um, I find myself really walking that line a lot. Uh, and I, I, what I, what I do usually is start out with the intention of just giving them, you know, a more, uh, a, a blanket statement, you know, some blanket truth is not quite true. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then I catch myself and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to end up where they they hear that so strongly that they don't they're not ready they don't ever learn the truth later and i just frankly i just don't like to lie to them mm -hmm. uh, it's just not my nature so i usually 
and I've gotten a little bit better at this over the last couple of years, but I usually try to, to, to say, you know, this is either not quite, it's not hundred percent right. There are some differences. So maybe in the example that you gave, I would say that .NET Core, like you can write C sharp code and specifically I would teach C sharp. So I probably wouldn't mention the other languages, to be honest, but I could say you could write C sharp code and it would run cross platform on, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux, and, um, you know, other devices. And then I would say, but, you know, I might, I'd slip in uh, that there are certain things that will only run on Windows, but that's not the kind of thing that you're likely to run into in, in this course. That's probably something mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah. I, you know, the, the, the trick is, at least the thing that I try to do, is to say the bare minimum that I can do to make what I'm saying true without clouding their heads, without, you know, filling, filling the, the space um, so that they don't worry about it. Cause, cause yeah. the, the danger of telling them the full truth is not that, you know, that they'll know the full truth. It's that they, you know, a student, a learner only has so much, capacity at any given moment to learn new things. Right. And so if you exactly. if you talk about things that are not completely relevant to the current topic, then they'll learn those things and then not learn the current topic. Yep. You gotta you gotta cut it up in the right size um chunks to to make it palatable and it's it's a tri- it's it's very tricky. Um I don't know the right thing, but I think there's sort of this prerequisite to learning a lot of computer science, in my opinion, that you have to avoid or you have to be very suspect of kind of absolutism. Like every statement that you hear should sort of be filtered through. Um, is that an absolute statement? Well, if it is, it's probably not true. <clears throat> you know, like all C sharp code will run equally good on every platform that would that should set off some flags and i feel like students should that's a skill they should hopefully develop early on which is this idea that absolute statements are you know malicious or benevolent lies and i think that that's something that it's easier for adult learners to understand than children uh, mm-hmm. and I, I focus on adults um because they've had life experience, you know, every adult has seen that absolutes never are never correct. You know, we adults understand subtlety and nuance, but at the same time, we sort of crave, I think as people, we, we crave simplicity and we crave the, you know, we want the ability to categorize things into clean categories. Mm-hmm. And so an adult will really, will, you know, many, most adults will still um, gravitate towards those absolutes because they're comforting. You know? Yeah, it goes back to just being easy and simple, something you can wrap your head around that you don't have to understand all the facets of it. And in a lot of this, we can, I guess, go on a tangent about this, is you know, instruction where the teacher is just, telling you something sort of lecture style and kind of lab based or real world work where it cements that learning. Um, 
I, I wonder what you see in the difference between how someone understands something when you're just telling them versus like them doing it themselves or sort of self-discovery. I, I imagine that the self-discovery stuff sticks a lot better. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky balance. Um, but yes, the, when it's hands-on, then people learn better. When you, you know, people learn better by doing one of the other side benefits of that sort of learning by doing is if the students are working together, then they can also learn by teaching one another. Mm. And so that, that, that all is just kind of a, like a, a, a happy little perfect storm of, of learning, I guess. <laughs> but you can't just throw, you know, the, if you could just throw people into, into the deep end and they would all swim, then there would be no reason to have teaching at all. Uh, I mean, to some degree we have some benefit. We create this curriculum and we say like, follow this. And, you know, maybe there will be a goal. There would be a need to write curriculum, but not necessarily a, a goal, uh, a need to, to lead a class or be an instructor. Um, I think that, I mean, I think that the tricky part is, figuring out how much context, how much information to give the students uh, at first and then let them go off. And what usually happens is that, you know, I I can say a lot of stuff. I can really, what I think is clearly articulate the the subject that we're discussing and students hear some of it, they get 20 minutes of it. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they don't get the first 20 minutes. They get like some, they get, Every every fifteen every five minutes or something like that, they get a few seconds. Right. Yeah. yeah. There there is some formula. Uh, of, you know what percentage of the people are listening and how much attention those people that are listening are actually giving you. Yeah. It's remarkable. Remarkably low. You know, it's depressingly low. It is, and and these days in these uh in these pandemic days, we're doing it all remotely. And so it's even worse. It's even lower because, you know, you got all this stuff around. Nobody's watching you. You don't have this sort of social pressure to be paying attention in class. Um, it's all it's the student is required to to bring all of their focus. You know, they're, they're the only ones that are that that are responsible for for paying attention. You know, in the classroom setting, you know, which, which I've done before is is much more conducive to learning because that's where we're, you know, that's the purpose of it. You know, the students I'm teaching right. now are in their bedrooms and the purpose of their bedrooms is not only for learning, you know. Well, well we had hundreds of years to sort of develop the model classroom uh, and have had not much time at all to think about what the remote version of that is. Yeah, I don't. And I'm, we're we're better at it after you know several months, but yeah, it's still it's still pretty tricky, pretty pretty tricky thing to do. Um, but yeah, I think I'd like for there to be a formula that you so you could predict when people are listening and when they're not. But the reality is kind of like what you suggested earlier is that they're not all listening at the same time, right? And so one of the things that's a benefit of that, of them not all listening at the same time, 
is that different people are getting different things. And then when they go off and they work in groups or they, they work on individual stuff, but they group up on their own, that sort of things that we might do a group project or we might just do individual projects where students are encouraged to work together. Then those people can do that, you know, teaching each other thing like, Oh yeah, I heard, and I heard this and somebody else heard another thing. And then they can put that information together. And, you know, that works pretty well. And if you just walk into the classroom, you know, virtual or otherwise, accepting that that's the way it's going to be, that it can be, it can be helpful. It can, it can be a little easier to deal with the fact that, you know, that at least a third to a half to two thirds of the class are not listening to you at any given moment. Because, you know, the you point, the point is, is for them to learn. It's not really, it's not my performance. Right. Do you find yourself having to contend with like um, alternative um, learning, you know, uh, opportunities, I guess, for the students? Like you say something, they hear that, but then they also go do their own research and bring up some uh, example from, I don't know, you know, Scott Hanselman or something like that. And they, and they come back to you and say, well, you said this and he said that, and they're kind of in conflict here and neither one of you is exactly wrong. It's just a matter of perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, is that something you have to contend with in today's like modern learning environment? Yeah, you do have to think about that. And that's, and that's a good reason I think to not lie to the students and to not even give them the little white lie because, you know, students will believe everything you say, whether or not, Mm -hmm. whether or not it's true or makes any sense. Um, but then, yeah, they'll go out and they'll, they'll see something else and it'll be contradictory or like you say, maybe, maybe not completely contradictory, but it'll be a different take on some subject or it'll be some special case or something. And so I think it's important to, to just be honest as much as possible and say, you know, I'm going to tell you this, maybe this is, this is one way to do it. There are a bunch of other ways to do it. Right now, I'm working with a class. Um, I'm not the lead instructor, but I'm working with a class learning JavaScript. And we spent some time uh, a few days ago showing them all the different ways you can write a function in JavaScript, mm. which is ridiculously, there's a, there's a very large number of ways to write a function in JavaScript. Uh, and I guess TypeScript too. Um, you know, you know, the old, you know, named function and then function expressions right. and then arrow functions and arrow functions that don't have curly braces and do kind of an implicit one-liner. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm sure there's a name, function expression again, maybe arrow function expression. I don't know what the, what the name of that is. Um, and then you could, you could co- do some combination of those. We didn't talk about async or generators. <laughs> we haven't got to that, but those are, you know, additional ways you can write methods, uh, either on an object literal or on a class. And those have a different, that's syntactically different. Uh, and we, we, we did that really intentionally because you're going to go out in the world and you're going to see documentation. And these are all different ways people are going to write functions. And we don't want you to just believe that the way that we're teaching you, the way that we focus, which is essentially arrow functions, um, we don't want we don't want you to think that that's the only way right and then we and one of the things that that we said was we would very much like to tell you that it's the only way you know we 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 would love to just not mention this right now but we're going to have to because you're going to see this in the real world yeah 
Um, and well, I think, I think I think the trick is to just be honest. It, it, the, the thing that you asked earlier, uh, did people come to you and challenge? And yeah, I, and I kind of like that, you know, when the student challenges me uh, to. I like it and I don't like it. So if I'm in the middle of a lecture and I'm talking about something and a student challenges me on something else, or sometimes I just open up for broad questions. And a lot of times the answer is the question that you're asking me is something that you're ready to hear the answer to that particular student, but no Mm. one else in this room is ready to hear the answer to that. So maybe we should take that offline or whatever. Totally. They have prepared their minds. They've done a bit of back, you know, research and thought, and then they, they, they're in the headspace. And yeah, it's just, I, I totally understand that. Well, it's also something to, to be said about the person, the kind of person that goes out and does that sort of research. You know, every yeah. student does Googling to, when they have errors or whatever, and they, they try to find the answer. Well, the vast majority of students do that. But not every student goes out and tries to learn something a, a different from what we're teaching or something additional to what we're teaching. Some students are, um, they have lives. They have other stuff going on in, their, in the world, and they're not just like sitting around, you know, digging through Stack Overflow or, or documentation or whatever all the time trying to learn new things. They have children to deal with, yeah. and, and a lot of them have part-time jobs or whatever. Um, I think the thing that, that's hardest for me is a- admitting that kind of my my mood or my energy level or my, you know, however I'm feeling that day goes into the code. Right. So I might be, or goes into the instruction. Like if I'm kind of low energy or just not, not feeling it for whatever reason that day, I might do something one way that, that I would feel differently about if I was really into the topic or really energetic. And I think that, um, sometimes people will come back and say like, well, why did you do it that way? And I'm like, well, honestly, I was just tired. (laughs) And, and there's just like this, the human side of, of software engineering, is something that I think we sometimes overlook that there are different ways to do it. And there's ways that require a bit more energy. And if we were on point and, you know, able to do our best, if we were machines, so to speak, we'd do it a consistent way every time, but we're not. And so we've got to respect the fact that like who we are as people will, will be represented in the code. That's interesting. I think that's another another benefit. I, I assume I've never taught children, but I'm going to make you know a bunch of assumptions about what it's like to teach children. And it's nice to teach adults because adults know about how mood can affect you. Adults are more empathetic than children. Um, they understand. They've had lives and they've had good days and bad days. And you can just be honest and say, you know, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, or I, you know, <laughs> right. I, I did this. And this is me being lazy. And I I think, you know, maybe I'm just kind of tricking myself or fooling myself with this, but I think those moments help the students see the real world of like what it is like to write code. Cause that is true. You know, sometimes, sometimes I'm just like stacking up technical debt in my code base. Right. Or sometimes I am, you know, I'm feeling not feeling a hundred percent and it gets into the code. Maybe I, I don't spend a lot of time either optimizing it or making the code more readable or right. maybe, you know, just take some shortcuts in naming or you don't do, um, 
You maybe make something static to make it easier to call. You know, just there, yeah. There's certain lazy workarounds that that any sort of experienced developer or maybe even inexperienced developers will, will know. Um, yeah, it definitely makes it into the code. And I, I don't want to necessarily teach bad habits, but I also think, you know, some people who have never been in technology before or just been sort of what they've seen on television, you know, television makes the world seem like it's just a bunch of geniuses and they're always perfect. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so uh, the benefit to those moments is that it reveals, like you say, the humanity of us as developers, us as technologists. We're just, you know, we're just building stuff. We're trying to, we're trying to get things done. We're also, we're distracted by, by life. Um, and, and I think, you know, I don't know. I think that I might not choose to do that. You know, I might, if it was up to me, I might choose to be more perfect all the time and to not reveal that. But given that it's impossible, I just sort of lean into it and, and try to make it a teachable moment. Yeah, I like. I think leaning into it is a good thing. Um, certainly something I try to do. I think one of the harder things that I've seen people struggle with, and, and I include myself in that, is when you're introduced to a new code base or something you haven't worked in in a long time, um, or ever, you have this presumption, I think that, that whoever wrote that code knew what they were doing <laughs> somehow. And you have to like, uh, disavow that notion. You have to say, these people were just like me. These people were, had good days and bad days. And this is not exactly necessarily perfect. Um, it, it takes some, some practice, I think, to do that. You, you go in there to a new code base and you might say, oh, this is the way it has to be done, um, without realizing that they had trade-offs and they had, they took out loans and made technical debt and all kinds of stuff, just like you will. Um, I, I see a lot of people struggle with that, I think. Yeah, I think that is, that's really challenging. I, you have to be a pretty mature developer. I don't mean mature as a person, but you have to have quite a bit of experience, I think, to see that. You ha you've had to have gone through and, and been the person who built the system, knowing full well that you could be doing it better, but you know you have to get it done for deadline or for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to experience that. And then you have to transfer your experience of having built you know, a good enough system, but not great system, to you have to transfer that to another you know person who maybe you've never met, uh, who's who worked on this system that's running that is actually doing business that people depend on and use every day, and it, it takes a lot of it. It takes some. I don't know what the word I want to say is, but it 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 definitely it takes some experience to get to that level where you can where you can do that and not just assume, oh, this was a senior developer who did this, so it must be. Perfect. Right. Right. Well, there, there's another side to that, which is seeing something and then having kind of, um, you know, the opinion that this code is garbage. Um, why, why would they do something like this? Uh, and, you know, you have to realize that that person might've been taught uh, or, or, or learned their skills in a different era of programming uh, when things were done differently. I mean, I feel like that's, 
part of our part of a great part of our industry is just like that we continue to evolve our code style we continue to evolve our techniques and new language features come out and make things easier and yeah so it's kind of the opposite problem where someone comes in and assumes that the person didn't know anything and they're they're uh, they were bad at their job when really it was just a matter of they they were just taught differently well, and, and, you know, what constitutes best practices definitely have changed over time. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, like a for loop. I, I instantly think of for loops when you say that, you know, um, just uh, they've kind of fallen out of fashion, I'd say, recently in a lot of our higher level languages. Well, and I think related to that is, you know, this idea of, deeply nesting and making, you know, long functions. I think just, right. just a yep. long function. There was a time, uh, not, you know, in computer programming terms, it was a long time ago, maybe, but in, in actual terms, it was not that long ago. Um, it, there was a time when it made sense to write long functions because there was a real cost yeah. to calling multiple functions. Yeah. Jumping around, um, yeah, definitely. And then the com- compilers, it was a little bit harder for them to optimize. Yeah, it makes Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but I think that well, I guess that gets into why I feel like history is sort of an important component of learning. Software engineering kind of gives you that perspective that if you maybe are dealing with an older code base, maybe you understand a little bit better why they made certain decisions and, and all that. Um but that also brings up, you know, brings us back to a student can only learn so much at one time and they can't get like today's best practices and yesterday's best practices all at the same time. So it has to be spaced out and, and cut up for them in, in bite-sized chunks. Yeah. And I think, I think we uh, is right to lean a little bit into more modern techniques. Um, if you if you have to sacrifice something to sacrifice the the past, because you don't really one of, one of the things that happens I think when particularly if you've got a couple of decades of experience on your belt as a software developer, you start to think that you the way to learn to be a software developer is the way you did it. You know, you grew up, I grew up, I'll just say, I grew up in a transition time, you know, go back to the long functions again. I grew up definitely in a transition time to when, from when that was the norm to like, hey, we don't have to do that. There's, this is easier to deal with. We, to have smaller, you know, better name functions and stuff like that. Uh, And so I, I don't, but I don't feel like I have to teach them that way i don't have to teach a student hey let's just put everything in one function and then oh it turns out this is hard to read so look we can make it better i can just say you know this is easier to read let's do it this way they don't have to think they don't have to think about any reasoning you know behind that um having you know multiple returns is another example you know there's no there's no reason for me to to introduce this say this concept of having a single return, you know, and, and I think, you know, they're, they're probably going to make arguments about overusing multiple returns, but I, I don't, you know, that that's the way the things used to be. 
but that's not the way they are now, and we don't need to we don't need to talk about it. Um, I think, though, kind of related to the for loop is interesting because I do think that uh, somebody who's learning software development today, I personally think that they do need to understand what a for loop is. You know. I think that they we should not just you know completely remove for loops from their vocabulary, and even though there are multiple kinds of loops, you know C sharp has, you know a for each loop and a for loop and a while loop, um, and in some language like again language like JavaScript has even more loops, um, and they have you know different you know, array methods or or list methods or things like that too, that can do these things. And there's just tons of ways to iterate over things and do stuff with it. But I do think that it is important to show some of that fundamental foundational stuff. I mean, we show if statements, we show for loops, we show while loops, and we might not spend as much time on those things as you might've done when that was the only tools you had. But it's important to, to be able to think about the code in those terms, I think. And then, you know, maybe somebody would disagree with me and tell me that, you know, you should just throw all that out and teach them a purely functional language and use recursion for everything. Um, but I, I think you're going to find code in the world that was written, you know, using this more, this older style, uh, where, you know, uh, so I, I feel like an example is good because a for, I still think that there's plenty of reasons why you might want to use a for loop. Uh, just traditional for, you know, I is zero or from I to whatever, I plus plus. But there's not as many as there used to be. And so an example, but an example you might see in the real world is I've got a list, a new list, and I'm going to iterate over another list. And for each element in that list, I'm going to do something and push it into or add it to the end of this, this uh, new list, right? And it's a mapping operation. And so, but there's plenty of code because of exactly what you said earlier, there's plenty of people who are still writing code today who learned to write code using a for loop to do that, to make a new list or a new collection or whatever, to iterate over the old one, to do some operation in the loop, to append the thing to the end of the list and then return the list or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that code exists and people should be able to read it. Uh, yeah, I agree with your earlier assessment that they're going to find, you know, you're, you're training these people and, and hopefully their next vocation, right? So, like, you, you want them to have practical knowledge and there is no doubt um, sitting here in 2020, I guess maybe this will change in the future, but they are going to encounter code with for loops. Um, pretty much, I, I don't know if it can be guaranteed, but in most of the languages, I feel like people are getting hired in to do a lot of work. They're going to see for loops, and they have to be able to read them at least, and maybe write them. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think understanding. Um, how they can be misused or the pitfalls, you know, that should be accompanied with that and say, we, we think we have a better way um, for a lot of scenarios where we used to use these types of loops. Uh, and perhaps you should think about using this instead. 
So they, it, it is, it goes back to the, what do you tell them? What do you teach them? And unfortunately, yeah, we are in like, you called it a transition period, perhaps, um, where we, st where we have these kind of language primitives, like the for loop that, that still exist and still serve a purpose. Um, but like you said, not as many purposes as it used to serve. So how do you, how do you teach them all of that? Given that you have so little time, you know, that, that stuff that I feel like I heard, but didn't really appreciate until years into my programming career. Um, I, I think you're right that every, like almost every language has loops, not every language. But almost every yeah. language and the vast majority of languages that uh, that people will use. Prior the ones to that people get paid to write yeah. have four loops. <laughs> yeah, most of them. Most of them. They're, you know, I'm sure somebody listening would think of an example or maybe sure. writes, you know, Elixir for a living or some such. <laughs> well, I heard that um, a key to having a successful podcast is you say something that gets uh, gets people, you know, uh, angry and then they write in and you get that, that nice feedback loop. A nice feedback so, loop where they're mad at us yeah. and then we get mad at them. Yeah. Right. Let's just have a few. So the key is the key is to to say something incorrect that gets people fired up to write in to you. You're really successful when enough people are so mad that they start their own podcast. Right. <laughs> yep. Um I think you how do you how do you teach these things? There, there's um there's degrees of teaching. I have I have um there, there's teaching and there's exposing people to ideas. Um, and again, a lot of the things that people learn happen. They really get you know internalized when they're practicing and doing stuff and maybe one-on-one -on -one conversations or small group conversations, which is probably the, the, the best, um, at least for me, it's the, some of the most enjoyable is those individual conversations. Um, but that's, that's when a lot of the teaching happens. So it's not just I'm in the middle of a room or virtual or otherwise and saying a bunch of stuff that only a third of the people are hearing in any given moment. Um, it's, it's more, it can be more focused, but I, I really want to expose people to, to different, different technologies, different tools, different aspects of the language, not all the aspects of the language. I mean, um, I don't know, I don't know any language that you could actually, that I, I would be able to teach everybody, you know, the entirety of the language and have any time left over to teach anything else. Uh, right. But, you know, different, trying to teach different aspects of the, of the language. Um, but again, it's really not necessarily in-depth teaching, all of it. It's Some of it is, I just want you to see this. So an example yeah. of that is, I, you know, sometimes I do a lecture talking about the .NET runtime and what's really going on in there. And that gets, that's very high level. Um, but it really is something that people don't think about. You know, they don't think about the fact that there's a physical machine that's executing this code and that, you know, the runtime is this sort of interpreter that's, you know, running through this IL and 
Occasionally, something like um, um, ahead of time or just in time compilation comes up. And we think about memory. And we think about the fact that this is physical things that are changing. You know, like the world, the universe is literally being altered by the code that you write. And I don't go into a lot of depth on that. I spend a little time on it. Um, but it's enough to expose people to the idea. I, I think. I hope it is at least. But we don't need, that's not the purpose of the course. You know, the purpose of, and we don't talk that much about hardware, but I want to talk a little bit about hardware. We don't talk that much about the cloud, but I, I mentioned that it exists, that, you know, that there are other, these other people's computers and they let you use their space for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Not for free, generally. And we talk about, we, we talk about that a little bit, but we don't, it's not a course in, you know, using the AWS console or whatever and all the various crazy tools you can do there. But, you know, they don't know. They've never been exposed to this stuff. So we, we try to do a little survey of those things. And a for loop is probably something we dig a little deeper into. I think, you know, once you understand the concept of iteration, a for loop isn't that bad for people. And we, I find that people tend to stick with loops even when we introduce things like link methods in uh, C Sharp because it's easier, it's easier for them to, to read because there's less happening on each line. Um, something like, I don't know, a take method or a where, maybe I'll stick with where. You know, aware is a loop and an if statement, but it's all condensed, right? And to understand that, you have to you have to sort of accept. You have to truly accept the the um, the abstraction of it. And you have to say, like, well, I don't need to care how we're looping, or I don't need to care what the if it's a ternary or an if or whatever it is, right? Um, I just I just need to know that it's a iteration and a conditional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but a student uh, who is not as comfortable with those things, they they find that magic to be really disconcerting, and so they really they they go back to the loop where they can say, okay, this line is just about looping. This line is right. just about if some condition is true. This line is just about like you know adding some new thing, adding the thing if it's true to this other list or whatever. I, I, it's funny. I understand what you're saying. Um, but it's just interesting how humans can, I, I don't know what the, what, what makes us do this, but you know, people can write, um, C sharp code and run it and not care what the dot net runtime is. Right. You were just talking about that. They, they, so we can use that dot net runtime, but not, not worry about that. Cause we were fine with that abstraction. Um, but then they feel weird about using the the where um, from link because they don't know how it works, or they they're they're uncomfortable with giving that control. They need to go back and take back control, and it's kind of like they, that seems paradoxical. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder what that why that is. That's a. I think that's a good question. I think about that sometimes too. I don't really have a great answer for it, but it's. I think it's something to do with 
how close you are to the abstraction. You know, I think there's that sort of school of thought in that I've heard, you know, people say about software development that you need to understand the layer of abstraction directly beneath you. Mm-hmm. And you don't really have to understand anything else. I mean, you can go or you, your understanding can be more vague as you go deeper, that sort of thing, which, you know, it would definitely say is true for me. Um, but I think there, you know, there's some value in understanding that level, the next level down. But I also think it's, you know, it's more approachable. Um, you know that if you're thinking about a, a, a where method, I mean, you know, there's code in there most of the time. Sometimes, you know, early on in the early days, a student doesn't really understand that there's code in there. It's just this thing and they don't have no concept mm-hmm. of it. But you understand, you understand that there's code in there and it's doing something and you just don't, you, you don't have a mental model for it. The student mm-hmm. But something like the .NET runtime, you just know that it's a command that you run. If you're thinking of running it from the command line or whatever, it's just this command that you run that, that does this thing and it makes the whole world come on the screen or whatever. Right. And so it seems like a, a default, a fallback to safety. Just whatever feels safer. Sort of like the water will find the lowest level. They just want the, the safest thing that they understand. I think, yes. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Some Something comfortable, maybe I would say. And safe, yeah. safety yeah, not is really safe and. Right, not 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 safety and yeah, safety is a little overloaded, I guess. But you know, not not memory safety or not any like computer programming or computer science safety. I mean, like, yeah, comforting, a sense of safety. Uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. Type type safety. I have like you know, pure functional programming is the self actualization of Maslow's. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny if we we redid Maslow's uh, pyramid with. Uh, different styles of programming i think some of it yeah. is is not under is a level of understanding too and it's it's like you hand somebody a phone and they see that phone as as one thing mm-hmm. and they don't think you know they don't think about even individual apps a lot of people don't understand that Or they don't think about it as that some person put all this stuff together or that, you know, somebody built the robots that put all the hardware together or whatever, or that there are software developers, teams of software developers writing all these things and they're all working together. You don't understand those abstractions and you don't understand them to the degree that you don't even realize it is an abstraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I bet you, I'm just guessing that the idea of an abstraction like the concept, the meta concept, I guess, of an abstraction is something that's probably a difficult thing to challenge or to teach people. Yeah, I try to talk about that sometimes. And I don't think I've ever done a great job of it, to be honest. Um, I talk about numbers. I think maybe I've talked about this on air before. I talk about, you know, thinking about numbers as this abstract thing. And it, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me, you know, like, in the original early humans didn't have this concept of numbers. We had, you know, you had three apples or whatever, 
Mm-hmm. And three was definitely associated with those apples. And the fact that three apples has something in common with, you know, three rocks was a, was something that had to be discovered. You know, that, that, that mm-hmm. the abstract idea of three sort of came out of that. And then you have to keep going further and further. And then you, you understand that there's this, this idea of what is a number. And then it takes, you know, uh, hundreds of years and you know in one area of the world like in the middle east somebody thinks about the number zero suddenly zero mm-hmm. you never had zero apples or you did have zero I'm like you all almost always have zero apples <laughs> but you don't you're not <laughs> counting them right i spend most of my life with zero apples right it's but i'd never thought about that before and so that's the yeah. example i use of abstraction because i truly believe as human beings that you know we are always abstracting stuff all the time and yeah. we're not but we just don't think about it and i think uh water coming out of the tap is a good example of a, of a huge abstraction right there's all kinds of stuff going on back there and i understand it vaguely right. myself i understand it well enough to know that i hope it you know i don't want it to break and i know it's complicated right. and i'm glad somebody understands it yeah i always think of and then um, in turn use this example so i overuse it which is like the uh a car and i you know i don't know i don't really have any i have a vague concept but don't really know how a combustion engine works uh, but i'm able to drive a car right and like all that stuff is abstracted behind the gas pedal and there's a lot that's going on when i press on it um yeah it, it, it took me a long time i was well into um writing code i don't know if i'd call myself a programmer definitely wasn't professional but it it was many years into writing code before i understood what uh was meant by abstraction and that's probably because i didn't have like formal training at first um so it was all just like high-minded computer science terms to me but i kept wanting to understand this idea um c++ builds itself as having like zero cost abstraction and i just I had no idea what that meant. And I finally one day was able to, it just clicked for me and I understood, but that was many years after writing code and programming. So I don't know if you have to understand the concept of an abstraction to program. I don't think you do, I guess, but um, it is a hard thing to teach someone who doesn't already have a firm grasp of programming. I think you do have to understand the concept of abstraction but you don't have to know it by that term and you don't have to be able to describe it or define abstraction. Mm-hmm. So I think abstraction is, I feel like there's, there's probably some better way to talk about it. This is a super abstract idea, right? Right. And it's by its nature. It's hard. It is. It's, hard. it's like, it's, it's the opposite of the way humans, I feel like normally uh, describe things. I usually throw out the throw uh, throw around the word concept because I think that's something that may be a little bit more concrete or a little bit more approachable. Because mm-hmm. um, you think of, you know maybe the concept of happiness or something like that. People can kind of think about those things, but yeah, I think I don't think that you can write software or I don't. I mean, frankly, I don't think that we can do anything. I don't think that a human being can get through the day without really understanding what abstraction is. Or maybe maybe that's not the right way to say it. Maybe using abstraction. 
So yeah. in pra pragmatically, we use abstractions all the time. But well, I think you hit the nail on the head that that we just we know it, but just by a different name. I I, I totally agree. Like we we can't get through the day without using abstractions. I mean, they're just everywhere. Um, but we just call it something different. We don't know it by that. And it's a because it is a real tricky concept. And if you look at like definitions for abstractions, those are pretty dense and hard to understand. Um, just I like the way this is the way I think about abstraction. And again, it comes from other other people who defined it. But you basically remove all the things about you remove, remove everything that you don't care about, and then you're done. Right. As soon as you remove all the properties of something that you, and you that you no longer that you're not focused on that don't matter to you right now, then you mm -hmm. have an abstraction. So your abstraction uh, of a car, you know, could just literally be this this thing that gets you where you want to go, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to, you know, your concept doesn't have to be any bigger than that. And so maybe a, a small child, for example, doesn't have a concept any bigger than that. They have this idea that the car is the thing that that goes is the, the the go places thing, right? Um, and so you 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 stripped away all the things, you know. Even a child understands that a car has you know seats and seat belts and lights and um, doors and all kinds of stuff like that. But if you're just thinking about it in terms of the the its thing defining the car, it's the thing that gets you where you want to go. And the 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 thing the other part of that that's I guess is directly implied there is abstractions only exist in our own heads. Hmm. They only, they don't exist in the world, you know, just like, like back to the three. I don't know where three is. Three is not a thing that, that I can just, that we can share. I mean, that I can point to, you know? Yeah. And the car as the thing that moves me, even the car itself, like that word doesn't mean anything. Right. Like the 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 definite article, <laughs> the car means nothing, right? It only exists in our head. Yeah, I think that that's where maybe the the concept we were talking about before of of safety and this are sort of at odds because you start doing this and the people want to feel safe, they want to feel comforted, and they they run away from that. you know like what do you mean a car means nothing? Um, it's like but these these things that we're trying to teach people or trying to teach ourselves are inherently uh, at odds. So it's just difficult to to maintain both of them in our heads at the same time. Yeah, you think it's some kind of like cognitive dissonance or something? It, yeah, it could be. Uh, you mentioned a technique that it reminded me of um, something I learned a long time ago about trying to figure out what something is and maybe the opposite of that is, is figuring out what it's not and how that can be very useful sometimes if you're like trying to figure out okay what is what is zero cost abstraction or what is a keyboard or what is a cup of coffee and if you're having a difficulty defining that you can take the opposite approach of like well, what is it not um i've used that a few times in my life but not recently and i i'm glad you brought it up i'm gonna refresh my my mind on that technique there's um there's a trick i don't know if tricks right where there's a technique when in terms of 
of educating uh, education technique mm -hmm. um, that I'm going to get some of these terms wrong. But the idea is you basically ask, you're trying to figure out if somebody has a real misunderstanding of, of something or they just made a, a simple mistake. Mm. Um, and the technique is to basically ask, to give them two alternatives. So you point to uh, a function and you say, is this a function or is it an object? And so if, if somebody's making a mistake and they're not really, there's something that's not clicking for them, then you're really trying to get into, you're trying to drill in to, to understand where they're coming from. And you say, it, do, do you know what a function is or are you just going to say some random stuff? And then you might have to go, you might have to, um, to do that in a couple of different situations, you know, re related to what you're trying to work on. Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting. I mean, I don't know that you're mentioning what something's not made me think of that, you know, cause there's, you know, a function, you could maybe define a function if you, in, in super beginner simplistic terms, when you only think about functions and objects, what is a function? It's the thing that's not an object. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm gonna have to I'll have to think on that. Um, all kinds of like things in the the teaching tool bag. Um, it feels like we've forgotten. I mean, we in the sense of like the modern um, world of computer science education have sort of forgotten a lot of techniques about teaching. Uh, maybe we should look back towards history and, and, and see how instruction was done, you know, 100, 200 years ago. Uh, yeah, I don't know. A topic for another time. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about it. I'm not, I don't know that going back 100 years and trying to pick up education from that is going to help us that much. <laughs> well, it just might be that there are, there are things that have been lost to time. Um, maybe we should re-examine sort of like the Renaissance, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we go back and, and look at the, the ancient, uh, the ancient ways. Where well, I, I think, you know, we, we teach each other. I think you know, that the apprenticeship model or something like that mm -hmm. is, is more, is more universally applicable, but it, it also, um, well, it's more it's more universally applicable to to different subjects, whatever you're teaching, as opposed to sort of this industrial let's drill times tables in your head. Right. Yeah. Well, that that feels like another conflict that that you have maybe that um and I guess myself as well. It's like we're trying to teach people because we want them to be productive workers. But that's a conflict with like our own personal interests and our own passion for programming of like trying to teach people to be critical thinkers um, and, and, and appreciate this from an art form rather than just like a way to make money. Yeah, that's a tricky one because I think it's you do part of part of being a good software developer is critical thinking, but you right. don't. Can you focus on critical thinking without really? you know, loving this stuff. And I think you can, I think, I think it's hard 
if you don't enjoy problem solving, I think being a solver developer is going to be really tricky for you. You know, I, yeah, for the long, yeah, for for long term career, I think so for for the most part. But but it, I mean, can people learn to program and make money and be a junior? Yeah, they can. But can they go and and be a, a lead or, or or something and have a long fifty year career in computer science and have a real passion for it without just hating themselves? I think I think you have to have critical thinking in there in order to do that. So one of the, my own biases comes to comes into play here, which is, makes it really hard for me to to understand uh, some people, and that is that I just really don't like doing stuff I don't like. <laughs> really don't like it, and so yeah. I just can't blame you. I try to avoid doing things I don't like, and I have had most of my life. I have had the luxury of being able to do that, of finding things that I like that have, that have worked for me and, you know, not doing things I don't like, and, you know, sure. Sometimes I have to do something I don't want to do, but I don't know the idea that you could work somewhere and do something professionally that you don't enjoy. Now, I think you could, you don't have to be, you know, that doesn't have to be your biggest passion or it doesn't have to be the only thing that you do. I think that that, you know, I think it shouldn't be the only thing that you do. But the mm-hmm. idea that that a person could write code and be a software developer and really not like it is just it's incomprehensible to me. Now, and I know that that is that happens. I mean, I, right. a very good friend of mine is like that. He is he basically has been writing code for twenty years and he doesn't like it. <laughs> but it uh. it pays his bills and it, it puts gives him a lifestyle that he does like. Yeah. And so well, it works out for him, I guess, but yeah, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I guess that's my own bias. It's like, I feel like I'm in the career that I, you know, I'm passionate about that I, that I meant to be in. So I just have a hard time envisioning being in a career that I, that I have no love for. Yeah. I mean, what, what if uh, you were an accountant or something, you know, not even, yeah. Just something that would take critical thought. It would take, you know, mental power. It would be in that kind of way. It would be kind of, you know, you'd sit at a desk and do these this math or this accounting or what. I don't even know it. I don't know well enough to describe it. But like, <laughs> right. like that sounds terrible to me. And yeah. so, but you, you know, you can make good money at it. Um, you can have a successful life, I guess. Depending yeah. on maybe it depends on how you define a successful life. But I could not because I am too stubborn to do things that I don't like. Well, we didn't get to TypeScript. Uh, maybe next time. I am very curious to hear so there, how your TypeScript journey is going. There's a link between Skeletor's lack of a face and TypeScript. <laughs> Bring it back. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, maybe... Maybe he should wear shorts or like a tank top. If he did that to show off his muscles, then he would maybe it would draw attention away from the fact that he has no face. Yeah, maybe. Well, see, we know Skeletor is like a, a powerful wizard or sorcerer. Yeah. So there, there's something something there maybe that we can make a connection. You know, is, is TypeScript a powerful wizard? Is Anders Heilsberg a powerful wizard? You know, what what's his secret? Um, I, I don't know what the connection is, but I'm sure someone can make it 
Yeah, that's it. Now, I think that's a challenge for me when I'm working with students is to to find a way to connect everything back to Skeletor now. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're any if you're a person who calls himself a teacher, you should be able to connect any metaphor at any time. According to Wikipedia, any... he's a supervillain. Hmm. Also uh, fictional. I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. He is. Let's see. He serves the arch enemy of his nephew, He Man. His nephew. Oh yeah, that's that's late season. Uh, that's a spoiler. I, Sorry. Yeah. Any any listeners who don't know that yet. So is this some sort of like? Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker thing, but just not quite as strong. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We don't want to go full on Star Wars here. But his his estranged uncle is apparently his faceless. Okay. All right. Skeletor. Universal metaphor. The universal metaphor. That's right. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll pick it up next time. We will. All right. Sayonara. See ya.